Welcome to the EPMe.me show, where we get into the details of all things heart, rhythm, and ECG related with the best minds in cardiac electrophysiology. Hosted by David Ornstein. Hi, welcome to the EPMe.me show, episode 5. It's been a while since I've recorded one of these, and yes, based on the picture you can see, um, I have changed a bit, but there are a few people that have wanted to see a real picture of me. So yeah, this is me with my long hair and beard, um, all for good reasons. I'm hoping to donate my hair, but let's move on to this week's episode. And I hope to be doing more regular episodes for your pleasure and for your benefit. So we've already discussed the use of CRM devices, pacemakers, defibrillators to monitor and manage arrhythmias. But what's about using the leads to gain more information about the root cause of the problem? What do I mean here? We can use information from the separate leads during, for example, a tachycardic event to analyse and really find out what's happening to the patient. This is good for the patient as it means avoiding further invasive EP studies and helpful for us because we can make a more informed and timely decision about the treatment routes for that patient. One of the first things we taught when learning, we're taught when learning um, to interpret EKGs is not to trust the EKG machine's report without checking it out for itself. For example, how many times have we confused STEMI or left ventricular hypertrophy? Anyone seen that? I have. Or some kind of AV block or Winkybach coming out because of the irregular rhythm to be atrial fibrillation. Well, maybe we should take that a little further and make sure that we agree with our CRM, pacemaker and defibrillator devices, with their reports. Let's move into our first case. So, let's start with this example. You might have seen something similar like this before. Let me call up my laser pointer. So, the arrhythmia report here is telling us that we have an episode of VT. But straight away we look down here and we notice that the atrial and ventricular rates around the same, 144 to 145 beats per minute, 141, 142 beats per minute. And if we look at the A-sense lead and the V-sense lead and the marker channels, we see that it starts with an A-pace beat, a V-pace beat, that's okay, another A-pace and V-pace beat, that's okay. And then a tachycardic episode starts. And what does it start with? an atrial premature beat, and then actually a run of a few atrial premature beats. Now the first atrial premature beat is actually V-paced, and yes, it goes into a tachycardia, but do tachycardia starts with atrial premature beats usually? Well, this atrial premature beat goes very slowly down the AV delay, and enough, slow enough that a ventricle pace beat comes in, but is that enough to block maybe the fast pathway? And then we see a second atrial premature beat, and that comes too early, it comes in the blanking period, uh, it's a premature atrial complex, 
that it doesn't really want a V-pace on it, and it allows for it to go down, well, what we might call a slow pathway here. And that triggers an SVT where we see a slow, and then maybe a fast pathway back up to the atrium, and then slow, and then fast. Hmm. Is this actually VT? Does VT start like this? Well, no, VT usually starts with a ventricular premature beat. So could this be SVT? Well, it looks like to me that this could very much be a typical atrioventricular nodal re-entry tachycardia, AVNRT. With AVNRT, we have a re-entry circuit going round the AV node area. And to add... When testing this patient's atrial capture thresholds in AAI, the atrial pacing in this patient actually induced this same tachycardia, induced through atrial pacing only. Well, this is not just a visual episode here. This is a real episode here of AVNRT, where we triggered it itself with AAI pacing. So no... This isn't a VT episode, this is an SVT episode of AVNRT. Now this patient has a device with an atrial electrode and a ventricle electrode. And these devices have the capacity to do a basic EP study without any further invasive procedure. So we can use the device alone to further our understanding of the patient's knees and none of the risks and costs associated with a traditional EPS study. Wonderful! Amazing! So let's go one step further. Here we have a report from a St. Jude dual pacemaker, chamber, uh, dual chamber pacemaker device in a female patient who was admitted to the hospital with serious symptomatic palpitations and pre syncope. There's only one problem. We have not been able to catch one of these episodes on an EKG, EKG, let alone on a 12-lead EKG. But they were convincingly cardiac related and the patient had a high risk of causing injury due to the pre-syncope episodes. And so now we really have to consider treatment. Are we going to prescribe some kind of antirhythmic medicine? Are we going to send them home with some kind of recording device, whether it should be a patch or a halter or a loop recorder, but risk them having an episode which might involve syncope, fainting and getting further injured? Or should we do them an EP study with a view to finding maybe the source of the arrhythmia and ablating? While traditional EP studies, although they're generally very safe, are not without their risks. And after all, it's a minimally invasive procedure, but it's an invasive procedure where we introduce tubes, catheters, through the blood vessels into the heart. There's a risk of bleeding at the insertion site and a risk of trauma anywhere en route to or within the heart. And although they're done in aseptic conditions, we can't rule out the possibility of an infection, especially the dangers of an infection in a patient with a device implanted. And in this particular case, the patient had a known blood-borne virus of hepatitis B and C, 
which increases the risk to the staff involved in a case. Luckily, we knew that this woman had a dual chamber pacemaker with an atrial and a ventricle lead. And in this case, we were able to use her pacemaker device to do an atrial drive at around 700 milliseconds. And we could see, if we have a look here with my marker, atrial drive of 700 milliseconds. And when we did an atrial premature beat, we could see that it conducted from the atrium to the ventricle and the atrial premature beat actually took quite a long time to go down and conduct to the ventricle. We had the first beat at the end of the drive conducting quickly down, shall we dare to call it a fast pathway, and the second beat, our premature beat, conducting quite slowly, dare we say, down a slow pathway. And look, this triggered a tachycardia with a VA time of close to, dare I say, zero. And this repeated and repeated and repeated for eight beats of tachycardia, and then it terminated in the atrium. Hmm. What could this be? Well, we've got tachycardia here. She actually confirmed that this was what she was feeling. And it terminated in the atrium. So we're looking here at an atrially driven and started tachycardia that involved the ventricle and ended in the atrium. So could this be atrial tachycardia? Could this be... AVNRT, AV nodal reentry tachycardia, or could it be an AVRT? Well, here we see that the tachycardia ended in the atrium without continuing, and it didn't end in the atrium with an atrial ectopic premature beat, ended in the atrium with an atrial beat that came at the predicted time for the tachycardia with a similar morphology on the atrial bipolar lead to the previous beat, so it's very unlikely to be a premature atrial beat. So this is highly unlikely to be atrial tachycardia. So what do we have here? Let's move on and have a look. Well, what could we do in the EP lab if we could to help convert our diagnosis or the management plan for this patient? Well, let's reinduce the tachycardia. And that's what we did. We reinduced the tachycardia um, through pacing. And then what did we try to do? We tried to entrain the tachycardia through ventricular pacing. Now, when we entrain the, vent uh, the tachycardia from the ventricular pacing, which we managed to do here, we actually get to see if the ventricle is part of the tachycardia circuit. And once we stop pacing the ventricle, by entraining it slightly faster than the tachycardia cycle length, we can see the response. And the response we can see here is we have our last beat of pacing from the ventricle, or V-beat. Then it goes up to the A, and then we have another V-beat. Such what we call a V-A-V response, according to the famous paper written by 
Dr. Muradi is most likely to be AVNRT, AV nodal reentry tachycardia, or AVRT, an accessory pathway, like WPW, Wolf Parkinson White syndrome. If we'll be looking at atrial tachycardia, we'd expect to see a V, an A, another A, and then a V beat, as in atrial tachycardia, the tachycardia is atrially driven. So we'll see a VAV response. Now, what else can we tell here? How can we tell this is AVNRT and not AVRT, an accessory pathway? We need to measure the PPI, the post-pacing interval. And if we take the time between the last pace beat and the, and the next ventricular beat, the post-pacing interval, and we subtract it from the tachycardia cycle length, we'll see the distance of entrainment location from the tachycardia cycle, the re-entry circuit. And this distance, which is a PPI minus a TCL, tells us more about what we're seeing. Now, if that calculation of the PPI minus TCL is less than 110 milliseconds, it's most likely to be an accessory pathway because the ventricle is involved in the tachycardia and is close to the circuit and the accessory pathway. However, if it's above 110 milliseconds, it's likely to be AVNRT because although we entrain the tachycardia circuit, the ventricle in AVNRT isn't actually part of the circuit which is around the AV node. And therefore, the post-pacing interval minus a TCL, the tachycardia cycle length, will demonstrate that we're actually quite far from the circuit and it's above 110 milliseconds. Well, in our example, we have a PPI of, 100, of 541 minus the tachycardia cycle length of 360, and that's about 181 milliseconds. Well, that's far away from the tachycardia circuit, which means that where we're pacing from the ventricle isn't part of that circuit, and therefore it's less likely to be an atrial ventricular reentry tachycardia like an accessory pathway WPW. So now we've ruled out previously and here also atrial tachycardia, and we've reduced down the chance of it being an accessory pathway. So what is left? AVNRT. Now we also used a few other techniques during our diagnosis that during normal sinus rhythm, we did incrementally faster pacing from the ventricle and also from the atrium. And we observed that the conduction from the atrium to the ventricle and the conduction from the ventricle to the atrium, as we increased the speed, was decremental. Decremental AV conduction and AV delay, meaning that the AV delay gets longer the faster we pace, whether from the A to the V or the V to the A, indicates that the patient is unlikely to have an accessory pathway because what is decremental across the atrium to the ventricle, ventricle to the atrium, is the AV node. An accessory pathway the common accessory pathway is highly unlikely to be decremental. And this is something else that proves and pushes our diagnosis towards AVNRT. Now, there are some other pathways which could be considered, but that we'll discuss another time. This is a great example 
of getting some really sophisticated EPS and making a clear diagnosis using an already implanted jaw chamber device without risking the patient or risking the team in this case of going through an invasive procedure just to discover what the patient actually had. Now we follow this with a typical AVNRT ablation which ended up being a really simple procedure and based on the information we already have from her pacemaker we successfully diagnosed and we carried out an ablation procedure with minimum risk for the patient and for the team. So it's uncommon in our experience to use an already implanted device to perform fully diagnostic EP studies. I'm just wondering here, does your department use this method? Or have you any experience in this method? If so, please comment below about this and let me know what you think about the benefits or the limits of using these methods. I'd really love to hear from you. But maybe this is just food for short, food for thought, I shall say, about what maybe we should be doing in the future for the good of our patients. And I think this is really interesting. Please comment below and let me know. Now, next week, and in our coming up, uh, our next case, if you have a look down here, we're going to have a really great episode. We're going to be moving away slightly from the devices and we're going to be going deeper into electrophysiology and electrophysiology studies and ablations. And we're going to look at this case, which I like to call fourth time lucky, about a young patient that had her fourth ablation of SVT with this tachyarrhythmia. Looking forward to learning this with you and discussing it with you, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you also. One more quick reminder, please sign up at epme.me and get our cheat sheet. It will be a great help to you about learning how to read the EKG and really pushing you forward to get the best out of your EKG skills with the ultimate cheat sheet. Together with it, we're going to be having a live webinar and I really want you to be part of it. So go to epme.me and sign up or you could just go to signup.epme.me. Looking forward to hearing from you, looking forward to speaking from you. Have a great week ahead. This episode has come to a close. If you would like to get the ultimate ECG cheat sheet free and more valuable content, as well as notes from this and other episodes, please go to epme.me and subscribe. If you like this episode, please subscribe to this show on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. We'll really appreciate it. And if you're watching this on YouTube, leave us a comment below with your thoughts. And remember to hit the like and subscribe to our channel.